Whoa, good morning. Get a suntan up here today, right? Hey, it's good to see you. And I just want to say before I get into the message, I really hope that you will join me for that churchwide event that Nate was talking about. We're calling the reception. The bottom line is there's, there's really nothing better than a wedding reception, right? A good wedding reception. It's just a lot of fun, and that's all we really want to do. I feel like, man, as Christians, as followers of Jesus, we should be having the most fun. So there really is no other incentive for this event other than having a good time, right? So it has nothing to do with your relational status. So if, you know, if you've got a spouse, bring them. It'll be a great date. If you don't have a spouse, come looking for one, right? Who knows what can happen? But again, it's on the 21st. Uh, you can find information on how to register for that event in your bulletin, but I really hope that you will. And you can watch me and my son shake our hips, right? <laughs> my name is Nick, one of the pastors here. I want to welcome you to worship. Uh, we are in the midst of a series that we're calling Fixer Upper, which of course takes its name from the uber popular TV show on HGV, HGTV. So just show of hands, do me some good. How many of you are familiar with this show? Raise your hand. That's what I thought, right? A lot of us. And, and many of us, we love this show. It follows Chip and Joanna Gaines, right, in their house renovation business. Uh, in Texas, right? And there are all sorts of reasons why we love this show, but I would argue the, the number one reason that we love this show, kind of behind all of it, and, and other shows like it, is because you and I, we love a good before and after story, right? We love seeing a dilapidated old house be transformed into a beautiful new home. And I would argue that the reason why we love this show and other shows like this is because we long for that. We long for change and transformation. And the good news for us is that at the heart of the gospel is the possibility of change. It's the possibility of transformation. That because of what Jesus Christ has accomplished, because of the gift of the Holy Spirit, through the grace of God, you and I, we can be transformed. That today doesn't have to be like yesterday. That's good news, right? Y'all are the rowdy crowd. Y'all make some noise, right? This is good news, something for us to be excited about. And really, our goal for this series then is for us to roll up our sleeves, to tear out the dilapidated parts of our lives, and to collectively engage in a total life transformation. Well, this morning, I want to talk about curb appeal. In the world of real estate, curb appeal refers to how your home looks from the curb, right? how it looks from a street, how it looks from the outside. And right about now, this time of the year is when many of us, we begin to put a little more TLC into our curb appeal, right? A little sweat equity into how our house looks on the outside. Some of y'all have been spending several weekends now working in the yard. Am I right? I haven't. <laughs> Just going to own up to it. Not me. Not me. You see, we, we live in this neighborhood where a lot of the folks around us are retired. Wonderful neighbors. Love them to death. You know, but they've got a bit more time a little more financial margin in their life, to pour into their curb appeal, to make their yards look great. And then there's us. Got three kids. A lot of other stuff going on. I don't got time for that right now. And so you drive through our neighborhood, and this is what it's like. Ooh, wow. Right? And many of them have like, you know, these full, full care lawn services that come out on the regular, make their houses look beautiful. So you drive through our neighborhood, and it's like, ooh, wow, ooh, wow, ugh. <laughs> After telling you this, it wouldn't be hard to pick our house out, right, where, where we live. So we got, like, all the kids' outside toys are just kind of all over the place. Looks like we're in the used Cozy Coop business, right? Anybody need one? We got them, right, for sale. I don't have time for this right now, right? And so, you know, with three kids and everything else going on, I don't invest a lot into how our house looks on the outside, which I'm not afraid to admit that for the first time in my life, I got a guy. 
I hired somebody to clean up the outside of my house. And I got to tell you, this was amazing. I mean, this guy is great. It's the best money I've ever spent in my life. I don't have to do anything. And the house looks beautiful. I remember coming home after he did all the work and just being like, wow, I didn't know our house could look like this. This is, this is fantastic. And you, know, you go out to the mailbox with your chest all puffed out. Just kind of hoping one of your neighbors comes out. I like even waited out there and lingered for a long time, just waiting. Oh, hey, what are you doing? I got a guy. I got a guy, right? This morning, I want to talk about curb appeal. Curb appeal. And this sort of fixation that a lot of us have to pour a whole lot of energy and effort and resources into making sure things look good on the outside. Here's the thing. When it comes to the quality of your home, the health of your home, curb appeal is the last thing that actually matters, but it's the first thing that we see. And so the temptation is, is to pour all sorts of resources and energy and effort into making sure things look great from the outside. But I think we all could admit, just because it looks good on the outside doesn't mean it isn't an absolute mess on the inside. This is what we're talking about this morning. Really, another word for this is duplicity. This is addiction that you and I have to, to, to present ourselves as one way and all of the effort that we go through to make it look like everything's fine, everything's okay on the surface. When the honest truth is on the inside, we're an absolute mess. This is where we're going this morning. It's too late to leave. We've already locked the door, so sit there, relax. And enjoy. No, this is going to be, it's a, t- it's a tense message, but I think it's one that we need to hear and understand this. I've been working on it for two weeks, so it's been eating my lunch for two weeks. I'm right there with you, all right? So before we go any further, can we just pause for a moment of prayer? Let's pray. God, we thank you for being with us. We thank you for wanting more for us than most of the time we want for ourselves. And I just pray that in this moment that you allow us to be fully present here, to, to leave all the things behind that we left when we came through those doors, and to not worry about the things that are waiting for us, but help us right now in this moment. Do what you have to do. Just help us be here, to be in this. I pray that those places in our lives and our hearts that we've hardened, that have become callous, pray you soften them. Open us up. Make us fertile soil this morning for your grace. We thank you for your son, Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 23. I invite you to turn there. We're going to take a look at a passage of Scripture that comes from from a portion that's known as the seven woes. Y'all say, whoa. you got to say it like that. It's not like, whoa. It's like, whoa. Right? Seven woes. And these are really uh, all about the danger of living a life of duplicity, the danger of living a life overly fixated on curb appeal. And they're directed at this group of people known as the Pharisees. Now, more than likely, if you've been in the church, you've heard of these guys, right? They were like Jesus's nemesis. And so before we get into the text, I kind of want to spend a moment clearing up some things about the Pharisees, because I think they kind of get a bad rap. We have a tendency to sort of over-vilify these people, right? Turn them into these hideous monsters who, of course, are nothing like us, right? But what we have to understand is that in Jesus's day, in first century Palestine, the Pharisees were about the closest thing you could find to the good guys. I mean, for the one, on the one hand, they hadn't sided with the Romans, All the other pressure groups, all the other social groups, religious groups, and in a lot of ways, they had sort of sided with the Romans. They'd been bought out by the Romans, and they made tons of money off of exploiting their own people. But not the Pharisees. They were still committed to seeing the Romans leave their homeland. 
At the same time, when you read a lot of literature from around the time of Jesus outside the Bible, one of the things you learn is that, men to the people, they, they held the Pharisees in high regard. They thought very highly of them. I mean, they didn't spend their time in Jerusalem kissing up to all the aristocrats. The Pharisees spent most of their time, like Jesus, out in the countryside with the common folk. In many ways, they were regarded as like the local pastors of their day. And they were incredibly devout when it came to their faith practice. They knew the scriptures. They prayed. They practiced the tithe. They were incredibly generous to the poor. And theologically speaking, they were on the same page as Jesus. There was all sorts of debates. And you imagine that, debates within the religious world, huh? All sorts of debates, particularly about what happens after you die during the time of Jesus. This is a big uh, place of contention for a lot of the different groups. But Jesus and the Pharisees, they were on the same page. They both believed in bodily resurrection, something the other groups kind of rolled their eyes at, thought it sounded silly. And so my question is, why did Jesus reserve some of his harshest words for this group of people he had so much in common with? And if you read through the Gospels, what you find is that Jesus did not have a problem with their behavior. He didn't have a problem with their religious activity. In fact, in chapter 5 of the book of Matthew, Jesus even says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of even the Pharisees, you won't need to enter the kingdom of God. So he didn't have a problem with their behavior, with their activity. You know what his problem was with? With their motives. With the reasons why they did the things that they did. And the fact that they were using the things of God to essentially build a kingdom for themselves. I think this is really important for us to grab onto here. What it tells us is that, yes, Jesus cares about your behavior. Hear me when I say that. The gospel has a whole lot to say about your behavior. But the gospel is first and foremost concerned with what we've allowed God to do in here. With our hearts. With our motives. Because it is possible for you and I to say and do all of the right things, but for all the wrong reasons. It's possible for you and I to say and do all of the right things, but for all the wrong reasons. And here's why this is scary. In the end, the Pharisees, they rejected Jesus. We should, we should hear this and read this as tragic. This is a group of people who had spent their entire lives, not just one day a week, their entire lives searching, longing, praying for the Messiah. Their entire lives revolved around this, studying the scriptures, trying to understand when he would come, how he would come, what he would be like. They longed for the Messiah, the one who would come and rescue the people, the one who would spark revival in the hearts of God's people, who would set things right. But somewhere along the way, this is scary. We got to hear this. Somewhere along the way, they, they lost the plot. Somewhere along the way, they allowed personal and political agendas to steal their motives, to hijack their motives. And in the end, they rejected their Messiah, the one they had been longing for. See, it's possible for you and I, people who are around this stuff all the time, man, it is possible for us to be around it, to be in it, to be familiar with it, but to miss out on truly experiencing the new life that Jesus Christ has come to offer us. It's possible. It happens. It happened then. It still happens to today. It's possible for you and I to do and say all of the right things. 
But man, if God is first and foremost not transformed this, if we have not opened up the core of who we are to the good news of the gospel and allowed God's grace to transform us, and here's what I know. Any sort of change and transformation we experience, it's not going to stick around very long. As soon as life happens, as soon as something unexpected happens, as soon as things get difficult, what do we tend to do? Do we stay the course or do we bail on our Messiah? Do we keep on going or do we have Jesus crucified? What do we do? If our motives, if God does not have say over our heart, if we have not allowed the, the saving love of God to transform us from the inside out, then any sort of change you and I experience, it won't stick around very long and it won't go very deep. So really what these woes are about here in Matthew 23, they're really a description of what this duplicity, right, of what this fixation with curb appeal, of how it shows up in our lives, how it manifests itself. And I wish we had time to go through all seven. That'd be a whole lot of fun, wouldn't it? But we don't. So I'm going to handle two of them this morning. It looks, it looks down at Matthew 23, starting in verse 25. Jesus says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside also will be clean. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Now, this is Jesus trying to win friends and influence people. It's right? oh, a hard word, right? It's a hard word. And I want to look at it in reverse order, right? The first thing Jesus does is he can, well, the second thing he does is he compares these Pharisees to whitewashed tombs. What's this all about? Well, see, according to Jewish consciousness, to touch something that was dead made you unclean, right? Ceremonially, you were unclean. And there are all of these very elaborate cleansing rituals you would have to go through in order to be able to come back into the community of the people, right? And so, so often what would happen is around Jerusalem, they would paint these tombs in whitewash. They would make it really, really white, really, really hard to miss. Because the last thing you'd want to see happen is somebody who was heading to Jerusalem to celebrate one of the big religious festivals of the year to happen to stumble across a tomb, right, a burial site, and it becomes ceremonial unclean and then miss out on the festivity because they would have to go and do this ceremonial cleansing process, right? So to whitewash them, it made them more visible so you could see them. At the same time, this whitewash, it cleaned them up a bit, made them look nice. So Jesus says to the Pharisees, he says, listen, you whitewash tombs. You try and clean it up. You try and make it look okay, but the truth is the inside is full of dead bones and everything unclean. And essentially what he's saying to the Pharisees is you, you put forth so much effort. You work so hard to present yourself like you're okay, like everything is fine. But the honest truth is when it gets quiet, when it's at night and you're trying to go to bed and your wheels are spinning, you know. You know on the inside, it's a complete mess. We know a thing or two about that, don't we? Right, this overfixation with curb appeal, right? To, to, to make it look like we've got it all together, like we're okay, like we're keeping up, like everything's fine. But on the inside, we can be a complete mess. Am I right? It's like me and the dentist. 
I don't like the floss. I'm going to say what y'all think too. We don't, we don't like the floss either. But the majority, I don't do it. I hardly ever floss. I said this in the last service and I had a dentist give me a thing of floss. It was great. I don't like the floss unless I have a dentist appointment. Y'all know what I'm talking about, right? Like two days before a dentist appointment, I'm flossing like 10 times a day, right? I'm like gargling with gasoline, right? It's crazy. It's like no matter how hard I try, that effort's not going to cover up the months of neglect. I got the cavities to prove it. <laughs> we work so hard to present like everything's fine. Exhaust ourselves. Put forth all this energy to look like we've got it together. Like everything's okay. But the truth is, on the inside, where it matters, we can be a complete wreck. This has happened several times where someone will come up to me, you know, I'm a pastor, and they'll, be, they'll ask me a question about a particular passage, right, or a verse. Like, what does it mean? And my first thought is, I have absolutely no idea. Like, I have no idea. What that, in fact, I've never read this before. I, I think they made it up. It's the first time I've ever seen it, right? That's the first thought that pops in my head. Second thought goes something like this. Just fake it. Just fake it. Start saying a bunch of big words they don't understand. Talk really fast and just be sure to finish at the end with, you just got to trust in Jesus, right? <laughs> people walk away from you going, what just happened to me, right? You've been there before too, I bet, though. Right? You've walked in on a conversation. Or maybe there's this group of people, for whatever reason, you feel really, really inferior to. It's like as soon as you get around them, you go back to middle school, you know? Like you're on the outside looking in. You're in that setting, you're in that circumstance. What's the first, first voice say to you? I have no idea what they're talking about, or I, I do not fit in here, right? What's the second voice say? Fake it. Fake it. Just pretend like you got it all figured out. Or just do whatever you have to do in order to fit in. Do whatever you have to do to look like you've got it together, right? It's like you and I are addicted to this impulse to, to make it look like we've got it all figured out, to make it look like we're keeping up. This is duplicity, and it shows up in some really destructive ways. I mean, I'll be honest, you know, I, I love this community. I love Lexington. This is where my, God has called my wife and I. And because of that, we've asked God to help us see Lexington the way that God sees it. And I'm just going to say, one of the things I've noticed, we're a big-time presentation community. It is. We've got to make it look like we got it all together. There's, a, there's like a Lexington normal that you're supposed to live according to. And if you're not there, something's wrong. I mean, why is it my son's five and I have anxiety? That he's out in 15 different sports by now. Man, this is the community we live in. It's like there's a certain standard of living. You've got to meet this. You've got to drive this kind of car. You've got to live in these neighborhoods. Your kids got to act like this. And if they don't, what's wrong? Why aren't you keeping up? So I can guarantee you there's a whole lot of us in this room, we are exhausting ourselves in every way, shape, or form trying to live into somebody else's dream. It's exhausting. We're upside down financially. We're bankrupt relationally. But by golly, we're going to put a smile on our face and we're going to act like it's okay. Really? Or it's, like, or it's like this. You ever find yourself in a fight with somebody you care about? Maybe it's a spouse, a good friend. Right? And there's this moment in the argument where you realize that you're wrong. You know what I'm talking about? Like, it feels like it's happening in slow motion for you, but it's not. It's like, oh, gosh. You know you're wrong. It's obvious you're wrong. What do you do in that moment? Do you own up to it or you just keep on going? Right? You don't have a leg to stand on, but you're going to go down. <laughs> you're going to go down swinging. 
Because we don't want to admit we're wrong. It's duplicity, this curb appeal. Is it healthy for our relationships? Is it really good for our relationships? No. Or I think about the person who, who messed up big time a while ago. And they're carrying so much shame for it. Or maybe you're caught up in something right now. And you're burying it. You're covering it up. And it's working for you right now. Nobody knows about it. Just you. The thing is, though, you want to get better. You want to grow. You want to move forward. But you're keeping it a secret. And the thing is, we can even convince ourselves that keeping it a secret is the right thing to do. We can do that. We're good at lying to ourselves. Or we tell ourselves it's not really a problem when it is a problem. Here's what I've learned in over 10 years of working with folks in ministry, coming alongside communities. You know what I've learned? Our skeletons, they don't stay in the closet forever. Some point in time, they come out. People find out. It gets exposed. And what I've learned is the longer we keep that stuff buried, the more destructive it is when it finally comes out. And this type of duplicity, this type of living, it's exhausting. It's exhausting. So James chapter one calls them the double-minded person. It says they're unstable in all that they do. Everywhere they go is shaky ground. There's nowhere they live where they feel content and secure. It compares this type of person to a little boat that gets tossed about on the waves of the sea. You ever feel like that? It's like when we, we buy into curb appeal, we, we get caught up in duplicity. We've got to be this person, this group of people over here, and this person, this group of people over here. We're trying to manage all of these, these half-truths or blatant lies. And here's the dangers. Here's the tragedy. When we do that for long enough, the second voice we talked about, the one that tells us to fake it, becomes our first voice. And then we don't even know what's true anymore. And a double-minded person is unstable in all that they do. This was not the life God created you for. And it certainly is not the life that Jesus calls us to. And so the struggle then becomes, well, how do we deal with this duplicity, right? How do we move past this fixation with curb appeal? Let's go back to Matthew chapter 23. You still out there? You still like me? Because I love you. In the middle of Matthew 23, Jesus he likens the Pharisees to this cup, right? This cup that is, it's absolutely pristine on the outside. It's shiny. It looks great. But on the inside, it's disgusting. On the inside, it's nasty. And what he says to the Pharisees is, listen, first, you've got to clean the inside of the cup and dish. And then the outside will be clean as well. First, you've got to clean the inside of the cup and then the outside will be clean as well. See, in likening our lives to a cup, Jesus is making it very clear what it is that makes you and I whole, what it is that leads us to transformation. It's not how things look out here, but it is first and foremost about what we've allowed God to do in here. Deep down at the core of who we are, have we allowed God to work there? Is that what we want God to do? Because often if you look at our prayer requests, well, what do we want God to do? Usually we want God to fix something around us, to fix something about us. How often is our prayer for God to fix us, to set us right? I mean, it's like we said the first week of this series, that if we're going to experience any transformation, any change, then we're going to have to continually go back to the foundation, go back to where it all begins. See, moving forward is often about beginning again. Do you know that? Moving forward is often about a commitment to going 
back and committing to ourselves to placing ourselves on that foundation. And the first word of the gospel is about God's blessing, God's love, God's acceptance. And the reason for all of, all of our dysfunction in our lives, if you, if you really do the hard work of looking at it, you know why it's there? Because in some way, shape, or form, we have not allowed God's grace, God's love, God's acceptance to go deep enough. To go deep enough. The first word of the gospel is God's blessing. We, first week of the series, we, we looked at how that famous Sermon on the Mount ends, right? Jesus tells this parable about two houses built on different foundations. Well, that sermon begins with what's known as the Beatitudes. You familiar with these? Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of God, right? Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Now, I've often heard the Beatitudes taught as these sort of to-do lists, right? These things that we have to do in order to be blessed by God, right? If you want to be blessed by God, you got to be poor in spirit. You got to mourn. You have to be meek. That's the posture you live with in order to receive God's blessing. If you don't live that way, then you're not going to get God's blessing. This isn't what Jesus is saying in the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, this is missing the point altogether, I mean, on the one hand, poor in spirit was not and never will be a good thing. It means to be spiritually bankrupt, spiritually destitute. I mean, this is somebody who is not even interested in the things of God. One scholar translates it as a spiritual zeros. This is not a good thing. And Jesus doesn't say, blessed are people when there's poor in spirit. He simply says, blessed are the poor in spirit. One of my favorite thinkers, Dallas Willard, he wrote a commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. And this is what he says about the Beatitudes. He says, those poor in spirit are called blessed by Jesus, not because they are in a meritorious condition, but because precisely in spite of and in the midst of their ever so deplorable condition, the rule of the heavens has moved redemptively upon and through them by the grace of Christ. Here's what that means. The Beatitudes, they're not, they're not, not a to-do list. They're an announcement. They're a proclamation, they're a declaration that God's blessing, that God's love, that God's acceptance is on everyone, not because of their condition, but in spite of it. Here's what this means. God knows about all the ways you screwed up. He knows. He knows the guilt and the shame you carry because of what happened to you. He knows the frustration of your circumstance right now. He knows all that. And guess what his first word is over you? Bless. You're blessed by God. God's love, acceptance, and favor is on you. Not because of your condition, not because of your circumstance, but in spite of it. You're loved by God. You are loved by God. This is where the sermon begins. Jesus goes on to teach on some very profound, very practical things. He challenges us on all of our anger and all of our greed and all of our insecurity and all of our unforgiveness. He talks a lot about this stuff, but this is where he begins. It's almost as if he's saying, listen, all that stuff doesn't matter unless you get this, unless you truly believe this, unless you accept it then we're never going to really get to the heart of the matter. And we're never going to really change things where they matter, on the inside. On the inside. And I have found that it's when we come to really embrace this, that it's true that you and I find the strength and the courage to actually deal with what's on the inside of the cup. It's like with my son, Rowan. He's five years old. I love the kid to death. He's taught me so much about God. 
But lately, my wife and I, we've caught him in this blatant lie. Like he thinks he's pulling a fast one on mom and dad, but it's so obvious, right? So obvious this is a lie. My first attempt was to argue him out of the lie. It's a stupid idea. <laughs> you ever heard yourself argue with a five-year-old? Parents, you know, it's like you hear yourself taking the tone of voice that you can't stand for them to have, right? You sound just like them when you argue with them. I realized it wasn't working. It was crazy. It wasn't until my son, eventually he came clean, but this is what he had to hear. He had to hear this. He had to believe it. I said, Rowan, listen to me. There is nothing you could do that is going to change how I feel about you. I may be disappointed in something you've done, but I'm never going to change the way I feel about you. There's nothing you can do to make your daddy love you any less. Never. Never. Rowan, when you lie to me, though, I can't help you fix it. When you lie to me about what's wrong, I can't help you make it right. But if you come clean, if you tell me the truth, if you tell me of what's really wrong, I'm not going to get mad at you for telling me the truth, but then I can help you make it right. It's like I watched his five-year-old brain wrestle with this, and it's like when he got it, he got it. He was able to tell me what was wrong. I want to tell you the truest thing I know, but Holy Spirit, I'm going to need your help with this because the truth is we've heard it a hundred different times. This is the truest thing I know. Holy Spirit, deliver it. Help it land. Help it land. Here it is. You ready? You are loved by God. You're loved by God. You and all of your guilt and all of your shame and all of your insecurity, you're loved by God. The first word of the gospel spoken over you is blessed. Blessed are you. My love and my favor is on you. And I have found that when we really embrace this, when we really trust it at the core of who we are, and when we continually come back to it, you know what we find? The courage and the strength to come clean. To come clean. To confess. To bring whatever is inside the cup, outside the cup to get it out there. And I'm telling you, if we're going to experience any transformation, any change as we move forward, confession, coming clean is absolutely essential. Your confession, the word in the Greek literally means to say the same thing. It means to agree. And there's all sorts of dimensions to this. On the one hand, confession means for you and I to agree together. That's why we have these, these confessions or these creeds, like the Apostles' Creed. It's confession. It's something we say collectively that affirms what we all believe, right? It's to say the same thing together. But to confess also means to agree with yourself. It means to acknowledge something that is true about you that you previously would not. Confess means to own up to how things actually are. Reminds me of of high school chemistry class. I still have nightmares about this class. I was, a, I was a relatively decent student, got mostly A's and B's and some C's, but chemistry, whew, only reason I passed that class is because I cheated. It was confession time, getting it out there, I was good at it too. And what's crazy is like, I remember growing up being sort of interested in chemistry. In fact, one of the first Christmas presents I ever got that I was really excited about was a chemistry set, one of those little, you know, little sets. I didn't do it right. I just made all this blue liquid and stained my parents' patio in the backyard, right? But I remember being sort of fascinated by chemistry, and so I was excited for this class. But I remember the moment when I fell behind. It was early in the semester. The teacher was going, you know, 100 miles an hour over some of the basics. And he even stopped class. I'll never forget this. He stopped class, and he said, now listen, You've got to get this stuff. 
This is the basic stuff. If this isn't making sense, the rest of it isn't going to make sense. And so if you're not keeping up, if you're struggling with this, you need to raise your hand. You need to tell me right now. I so badly want to raise my hand because I wasn't keeping up. It was not making any sense. But as I looked around the room, it seemed like it was making sense to everybody else. And so I didn't raise my hand. And to this day, I can't tell you a thing about chemistry. You know what confession is? Confession is just having the guts to simply raise your hand. You say, you know what? I'm not keeping up. I don't have it all together. This is a problem. I don't have it under control. It is an addiction. We're not doing okay. I need help. That's what confession is. It's to own up to all the ways in which we don't have it together. In which the story that we're telling ourselves isn't lining up with the story of how things actually are. Confession means to bring those things in alignment. Here's what I've learned. So when we own our junk, our junk stops owning us. So maybe for you, there's something this morning that finally needs to be brought out into the light, something that needs to be acknowledged. And you're terrified of that because of who you're going to hurt. I promise you, it could hurt a lot more for those people 10 years down the road when it comes out. Anyway, what do you need to come clean about? Maybe it's not something big. Maybe it's a simple insecurity. It's somebody that you're around for whatever reason, you feel really inferior to them. Own it. Acknowledge it. Call it what it is. I think transformation, it's this inside out thing that happens in us as we allow the love of God to consume us and transform us. It's something that that requires you and I to come clean. And finally, last point, it's going to require you and I to get real. Get real. And this whole following Jesus thing, transformation and change, you can't do it by yourself. But it happens best in the context of community with other people coming alongside of you, challenging you, encouraging you, pushing you forward. I love in the book of Acts chapter two, we're told about the early church, that they were in the habit of eating together with glad and sincere hearts. I love that word sincere. It means without pretense. It means without a mask. They got real with each other. And I would argue that everybody in this room longs for that type of connection, those type of relationships. But you see, this whole, uh, this whole curb appeal thing, duplicity, it often impacts our relationships and we keep people at a distance. Or we interact with each other through these projections of who we want them to be, who, who we want them to believe us to be. That's why we love Facebook so much. Right? We, we can control who, we, who people see us as. That's why you never put a, a profile pick up with a double chin. Right? It's duplicity. It's, it's presenting ourselves in a certain way. And so what ends up happening when that is what governs our relationships, we can be surrounded by people, but we still feel alone. You know what that feels like? There's a whole lot of power in hearing the word me too. Whole lot of power. When you're dealing with things like guilt and shame, the first lie we buy into is that we're the only ones. Nobody else knows what it's like to go through this. We're the only ones. That's why we should be so embarrassed. I'm telling you right now, that is not true. And I'm in a position to tell you it's not true because people come and talk to me about their problems. And it's so funny. One after another, all people come talk to me, share with me about something, and they think it's only them. And I so badly want to say, nope, the person who was in here 30 minutes before you, it's the same thing. I would love, especially for married couples, I would love more than anything 
to be able to come alongside you and somehow like back out of Lexington and let you see the whole place and highlight all of the houses of the marriages who are struggling with the exact same thing you are. Sure, the circumstances are different, the details are different, but it's essentially the same thing. This is why it's so important for us to be in community where we can share this kind of stuff because what you realize is this, what you're going through, as crazy as it may seem, you know what, it's also kind of normal. It's what it is. Living life well isn't easy. Living life with intention isn't easy. Growing into the kind of people God wants, it's not easy, it's hard. There's challenges involved. And there's so much power in, in being in a group of people who are open to sharing that with each other and allowing God to work through that relationship and transforming who they are. See, God works through other people, always has, always will. And when it comes time to getting clean, I don't advise you getting a billboard and sort of broadcasting it to the whole earth. Not everybody needs to know that. But my hope for you is that you have a group of people that you are in covenant community with, that you are intentional with, and that you are sharing this kind of stuff with. Otherwise, it's going to mess you up. So if you don't have this type of community, we call them small groups around here. I'd love to help you find one. We got a lot of great ones, a whole lot of people who are getting real with each other and allowing God to work through that relationship and to making them right. And the whole point of this series, remember, we wanted, wanted y'all wrestling with when it's all over. I don't want you telling me, oh, this is a great message. It felt so good to hear that. I hope you don't say that especially. But the point is to walk out asking that question, what are we going to do differently? Remember, insanity is doing the same thing and expecting different results. What are you going to do differently in light of what we talked about this morning? Maybe for you, there needs to be a regular habit or a first time. Maybe you've never said yes to the saving love of God. Why not this morning? Why not now? There's no magical right way to do it. Just say yes back to God. He's already said yes to you. Maybe you need to come back to that. You let go of it. You've been around this, but you don't really mean it. What you need this morning is to simply recommit yourself, reground yourself in the saving love of Jesus Christ. Maybe it's time to get honest, to acknowledge something you haven't yet. Or maybe you need to pick up the phone and call a few friends and ask them, hey, what if we were more intentional about our friendships, about our relationships? Whatever it is, as we sing this last song, as we worship, invite the Holy Spirit to reveal to you what's the next thing you need to do. Will you pray with me? God, we thank you for your grace. The fact that it finds us out. It meets us right where we are. It's been there the whole time. But Lord, it doesn't leave us there. That you wanna, you wanna set us right. You wanna make us whole. You wanna heal us from the inside out. So I just pray that your spirit falls fresh on all of us right here, right now. Search us and know us. Show us what the next right thing to do is. We love you so much. We thank you for your son, Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.